and an invitation to come before God as we seek to think about what it means to remember in a redemptive way. Do you join me before our Lord in prayer? Most holy Lord, we thank you for time during a busy week to come together to remember who we are, to remember that we are yours, to remember what your intent for this world is. We ask that you move with your spirit in this time that we spend together, that you use it to nurture and to heal and to draw our community together as we seek to become the kind of people who mirror your Christ. And in Christ's name, we ask these things with confidence because we know you are faithful. Amen. The music was written in 1976 by a Polish composer named Henry Gorecki. Um, I have the CD here if any of you want to see it afterward. It was a somewhat surprising moment in 1993 when this crossed over to the top 10 list of popular pieces. One of the subcurrents of what we're going to talk about today is how art that had been previously considered the arts of the elite, avant-garde, experimental art, has become a public language of lamentation, mourning, and remembrance in our culture. Gorecki's work written in 1976 was considered at the time very avant-garde, It's a form of serialism, or what he called mass sound composing. It was used in 1989 in a very public setting when the Polish people commemorated the invasion of their nation by the National Socialists on September 1, 1939. 50th anniversary of that was marked by a number of concerts across Europe, and this piece went public. Uh, What helped it become public in the United States, however, was this recording by the London Sinfonietta featuring the voice of Don Upshaw, uh, which was released in 1993. Since then, this has sold millions and millions of copies, uh, the soothing and healing solace of this music reaching many people. It's Gorecki's third symphony called A Symphony of Sorrowful Songs, and it dwells on themes of mothers who have lost their sons, including Mary and Jesus. Uh, The voicemail you got that gave you information about this session talked about what Randy and I are going to do. Uh, And we're going to go a little bit beyond that. Um, Instead of talking simply about poetry written in response to September 11 and the attempt to memorialize that in New York, uh, we're going to think a little bit more broadly about what it means to remember redemptively Uh, But just to give you a little information about what may happen in New York, um, on the cover of Art in America, again, you can come up and look at this later, is uh, the mock-up for one monument that's being planned. Again, a very, what would have been in the 60s and 70s considered very avant-garde monument of 80 very high-powered beams of light positioned facing upward in the place where the Twin Towers stood. And they catch all of the dust and particles in the air, including, particularly after the buildings fell down, uh, the ashes of many people who died in that building. It's a very poignant way of memorializing and representing what happened there. We're going to use the framework this morning that is built into our Christian liturgy. 
one of the oldest segments in the common worship of the Christian church, one of the oldest phrases, is the tripartite phrase, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again, which is used in many services of uh, the Last Supper or um, the Lord's Supper. So when you are in church the next time, partaking of the Lord's Supper, listen for those words. First, we're going to talk about the difficulty of remembering. Christ has died. Uh, The indescribable becomes real. How do you deal with that? We'll then move on to talk about the need to remember and the possibility of remembering. Christ has risen. Reconciliation has been accomplished. And thirdly, we'll talk about the telos, the end of remembering. Christ will come again. The kingdom will arrive. So I'm going to pass the microphone over to Randy. I have in my hand a uh, an issue of the of Image Magazine, a journal of the arts and religion. If you don't know about this, I think it would be a, an excellent thing to look up. This last issue is called 9/11 Psalms and Lamentations, and they've asked a host of their favorite writers to write matters of all sorts, poems, essays, having to do with 9-11. To get at the difficulty that a writer feels, and I'm speaking now as a writer, not primarily as a professor or anything, just as a writer who tries to get, to tries to grapple somehow with tragic events. I found something in here by uh, a Singapore writer, Hui Wee Tan. She says this, as time passes and spiritual historians sit down to try to figure out why on earth this happened, speaking of the World Trade Center's disaster, we mustn't let our theories make us forget that those who died weren't just icons, weren't just New Yorkers, but common human beings. Theological explanations and speculations in the face of an event like this seem abstract to the point of callousness. What is real is the pain and loss, the emptiness in the bright sky. Perhaps we may never have the vision to see God's fingerprints in this. And for me that is fine, for it seems facile, demeaning to the victims to latch any catch-all spiritual theory to this horrific, baffling event. I'm reading that not because I agree entirely with her. She's speaking of latching on, uh, tacking on a theoretical or theological explanation to things or trying to box it in. I certainly think that there are good uses for theological infrastructures in one's thinking to provide the very questions which a person would ask. But I struggled personally with this in the, in the wake of uh, the disasters on 9-11. A day or two after, I began to write a poem, and I quickly ceased to work on it. I felt troubled in my heart. I thought, who am I at this distance, not knowing anyone personally who died there, Um, Who am I to try to appropriate that experience as my own? 
I felt like an intruder or like a parasite somehow. And yet I believe in the value of poetry. And how can I reconcile those things? What is the sort of poetry that could answer to or not even try to answer to an event of such magnitude? Do I have a vision for poetry that would allow me to even use words? Or would my most eloquent poem be complete silence in the face of it? Now, when I see an issue of a journal like this coming out, I, I see that many others have wrestled with it and also have found their own ways of reconciling themselves with inserting their voice among the cries and howls of pain. I started, the poem I started had to do with what I felt was for, some, for me somehow at the very heart of the whole experience. I didn't want this whole experience to be about death, anger, sinfulness. I wanted it also to be about life, and, and I believed it was. But the place in the whole experience that seemed to me to reveal life most intensely was the, the moment in which a person, many persons, would take flight from one of those upper windows in the towers and choose their own way to die when death was inevitable, rather than to be burned alive or crushed, to say, I will jump rather than have that happen to me. It's an unthinkable moment to me, and I don't believe I have any way to capture the agony of that moment. I have no way to understand it. And yet I felt I may have some insight. Now, just this morning, under the pressure of this chapel, I went back to that poem and I've at least pushed it through to the completion of a draft, which I would like to read for you. I don't believe this is finished. Maybe you'll give me feedback and I'll, uh, and I'll work on it some more. This is where it stands today. The title is WTC, NYC, September 11, 2001, colon, flying. And it's in the voice of a person who has just made the leap. So then, my birthday bungee jump was practice for this. I was so completely, unutterably afraid. But somewhere in it, Alpha met Omega, and without ever letting slip the cord of fear, I found myself miraculously a yo-yo, laughing, howling with the rest of them at me, the one who used to be the newborn. I think I got it out of me that day. And now, without the cord, it's, if anything, easier. I know that to fall, there's nothing to be done. To fly, yes, you spread your wings, you, but this is not about acrobatics. This is about letting it happen. This is the first half before the yank. And it's good because this is the one thing, perhaps the one thing I could decide to do and did. It was me or fire.
feel the impression of the sill in a line across my soles, the same shoe soles that skated on the carpet to the corner office, the one with a view when they were brand new, out of the box, and on which I still fancy I skate when I'm walking, valise under arm, wearing my trading face. The line feels hot across the ball of each. I went for distance. I wasn't messing around. I can't believe that's what I think on my final birthday. The line feels hot. And I guess I'm bothered that the shine I've worked so hard to keep, my secret joy, will be chamois rough now and I'll have to start again. I guess you don't know till you're gone just exactly who you were. I'm glad I haven't heard the sound I will make. This is a brilliant day, what I can see from here. This is all about letting it happen, letting it come down, all the way through the teeth of the wind into life's howling throat. Randy and I have had a couple wonderful conversations about what we might say. There are so many things we might say. We don't have time, but I'd like to ask you where the poem sits with you now and where the points of tension and resistance, what, is, what seems appropriate, where you still worry. Hmm. Well, the biggest question, of course, is have I got it totally wrong? <laughs> you know? Totally wrong, like Prufrock says in the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. That is not what I meant. That is not what I meant at all. Maybe the person uh, throwing him or herself to death from that scraper didn't feel that way at all. Uh, also, this is not a particularly redeeming poem. It's not a poem in which I impose any sort of uh, godly meaning on things. Uh, I'd speak of life's howling throat. Um, it's an apocalyptic poem in that sense, a personally apocalyptic poem. Um, and yet there's a great deal in it of evasion, you know, to think about the soles of one's shoes and how they've been polished on the carpets of one's office is, is, is a denial of the first order. I'm not sure that would happen. And I don't think I can ever know. I guess what I want to know is, does poetry matter at all? in the face of this? Or is it a proud, um, is it a proud sort of imposing um, presumption on the part of, of a writer who can't stand to be left out of experience and tries to nose his way in by having his say also? So I'm afraid that someday I might be ashamed of having tried to write that poem. Today I'm not ashamed. I'm actually moved by it. Okay? On the topic of the difficulty, the almost impossibility of remembering deeply tragic and traumatic events. You've been looking at 
this uh, web page on the screen while Randy was reading while you were coming in. This represents the current version of what the city of Berlin and, well, it's a little ambiguous, the city of Berlin and the government of Germany have decided to do to commemorate the murdered Jews of the Holocaust. This is the uh, current plan. The history of this plan demonstrates the difficulty of remembering very complicated and profoundly tragic events. Um, the number of ways that you can go wrong and the number of topics that need to be thoughtfully addressed. The first impulse to create a memorial to the murdered Jews of the Holocaust occurred in 1988 um, when a journalist went on television and started to talk about the need for the German nation at that time, two nations, West Germany, uh, to do something. When the Berlin Wall fell down and German unification was set on its path, uh, this process was accelerated. Uh, there was a competition I have some dates here. In 1992, there was an official declaration by the German government that they would have a memorial, and the memorial would be dedicated only to the Jewish victims of the Holocaust. Uh, this was a controversial decision. There were many other kinds of people who were singled out for persecution by the National Socialists, and this monument was not to be for them. It was also decreed that it would be on a large central piece of territory, ground, in Berlin next to the Brandenburger Tor major monument in the city and next to the, uh, the rebuilt Reichstag, the governmental center of the country. 1994, they announced a competition. They got over 500 submissions. Uh, they picked the top four. There was endless talk, controversy, negotiation about those top four. The monument was necessarily part of a political process and parties got involved. The government, the federal government, came down on the side of one plan. The city government, because it's going to be in the heart of Berlin, came down on the side of another plan. Ultimately, all of those were rejected in favor of a second competition, which took place in 1997. That one was no less controversial than the first competition. And what has emerged out of all of the negotiation, the discussion, uh, the, the heated debates that get at this issue of how hard it is to do this well, not to blaspheme the past, not to trample on the memory of those who died. Um, this is the current outcome. It's going to be a field of grave-like stones that are roughly finished on the top of varying heights, uh, 2000, upwards of 2,700 of them. Uh, the designers of this are two Americans, Peter Eisenman and Richard Serra. Uh, Richard Serra, some of you may know from your art history text, a very famous 1960s, 1970s minimalist sculptor. Um, as far as I know, uh, the ground breaking has begun, but there's not much in place yet. Uh, but it's, it's a demonstration again, the long, hard process of remembering. Uh, which has been particularly pressing since the reunification of Germany, where two different stories of what happened uh, during the 1930s and 1940s in Germany have to be reconciled. Um, but we are called to do this work, no matter how difficult, how painful, how full of controversy and anger it may be. 
And I'd like to move us on to the second part where we realize that it is possible to remember in all of our frailty and incompleteness, Christ has risen. We can remember. And we must confront these questions that emerge out of the process. I was thinking as Lisa was talking about how all of this World Trade Center's Holocaust, how that relates to Good Friday. I think we've had 2,000 years to sanitize Good Friday and to encase it in plexiglass, doctrinal and personal, uh, emotional plexiglass, um, and so to make ourselves proof against it. When something like uh, September 11 happens, uh, it seems as if our impulse is the opposite. Very often we want to, we want to stare, we want to get it right, we want to know what that was all about, or you know, and we want to get close to it. People flood to the scene, and they're still doing that today. I think we can learn from our impulse there. If we say, you know, it's not as if Christ, being God, didn't experience pain and tragedy, and therefore he's okay. We don't have to, we can celebrate that in church in a safe way. But rather, let the tragedies, the human tragedies that we have experienced today, teach us about the true magnitude of Christ's suffering and the tragic events that preceded his resurrection. And then we will have a, a human understanding of it which takes ourselves into the picture and have, I think, a better understanding of Christ. Without, and maybe this is the key for me, without trying to, again, appropriate the, the pain and suffering for ourselves that we have not ourselves felt. Someone stands in our place and it's difficult to allow someone to do that. Um, I want to read a poem here which deals with the Holocaust. And um, this poem feels to me like, if I don't know what you'll think of it, but I, it feels to me like a relatively successful distancing, encapsulating and distancing and yet addressing of the, of the horrors that, were, that took place in the concentration camps. I was up late at night, one o'clock, and I saw a black and white documentary film called Remembrance of the Camps, 1945. And I watched it almost without blinking for its whole length. And then when I was done, I just walked over to a book, uh, a journal, and wrote this poem almost without changing a word afterward. I decided that it would be irreverent for me to emotionalize it, to attribute meanings to it. Instead, I treated it as a series of slides almost, much as the documentary film did itself. And in the end, when I revised it, I added a beginning and end which referred to the film medium itself because I'm aware of how many layers of interpretation and media separate me from the, um, from the events themselves. So this is called On Watching Remembrance of the Camps, 1945. It's a long, thin poem. Each, uh, each stanza is about three to four lines long. Establish, voice over, zoom. How ornate the iron gate. How little muscle 
walks how many bones? How wide the starving smile? How the bunk turtle cranes unblinking at the camera? How dragging chins streak the dirt? How strong the ones who push the cart? How ecumenical the feeding of 5,000 to trench number eight? How the socket stares. How the penis lasts. How white the yarmulke of snow on skull. How urgent the reach frozen by fire. How the typhoid flea rides out the flame. How expressionistic the char. How neatly made the barbed wire bed. How by the millions striped pants and tunics are saved. How long the line of citizens to see the skin box, the pelvis paperweight, the framed tattoo, how the tiny black head of the Polish engineer sneers on its trivet. How joy is left to the children. How the fed inherit all. How the wind drowns a voice. How many blades rise through a plowed field. Credits. find myself fairly speechless, <laughs> uh, which is appropriate, I think. Interesting that the right words can take words away. <laughs> um, when you first read this to me, we spent a little bit of time talking about that false interrogative at the beginning of every phrase. How? How, which we associate as a questioning word, but the phrases are statements. And the delicate balance of 
description and invitation in that choice of word. Yeah, I want to say something about that. Here's the way I feel it as a poet. Um, on a number of levels, I, I like what you said, the delicate invitation of it, because it says, when you say, how, how this, how that, it says, oh, look. But it also, it's a round and deep vowel. It comes from here, how. It opens you up. And you add an L and you've got the word howl, which was really the key word at the end of the last poem as well. I didn't want to do any overt howling in this poem. It would have been inappropriate. Others have done that before me. Um, but I wanted it to be there in the very structure of things, in a sense, and, and to be repeated so often that it seems almost as if it's in the wind itself. One of the other things that we talked about in conversation is the ways in which representation, even layers and layers of representation, help us approach some of these very difficult things. And the fact that Randy wrote about a documentary that he saw on television gave him, I don't want to put words in your mouth, some sense of permission to describe that and not blaspheme the past. And here I s sit, reading to you over these airwaves through a microphone, words that are written on a paper about something I saw on television, mm -hmm. which is a reproduction of something that's, that was cast on film, mm -hmm. which passed through a camera, which saw the actual events on the camp, which came from that mm -hmm. and was filmed in 1945. So, uh, you know, that's, and I probably left out a few layers of, distancing. It's almost like having to hold uh, some kind of um, radioactive nugget with tongs, you know, that are cool enough or absorptive enough of the radio radiation to, to allow a person to, in any way to come close, or more like needing a robot to go in and do the mind-clearing operation. Um, I'm going to play for you in just a moment. Um, something that uh, does, in a similar way, invites responses from the people who visit the site. Uh, it's a clip from a documentary about Maya Lin, who is a young architect and designer who was responsible for the design of the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C. Um, a word of hope and inspiration for you is to remind you that she was 21 when she submitted a design for this competition. She was a senior in college when she did this. It has become a touchstone, not only for the community of Vietnam veterans, but for the entire country and for the arts community. A very successful example of how a thoughtful artist can delicately invite responses that are often not verbal but need to be uttered in a sense. So if we can have that play, it's about a three and a half minute clip, a representation of a representation. Goes forth uh, a longer and more lasting and perhaps eternal reconciliation. Did you want to lead into the last portion here? Do you want me to lead in with the poem? All right. Um, we thought we'd end just by referring again to the third clause that Lisa started out with, Christ will come again. We've dealt with the difficulty of remembering things. Um, 
it strikes me that how we remember things has everything to do with what we reach for, what we think we're living for, what we're living into. Those two seem inseparable. That's not the case in every religious tradition, but it certainly, I think, must be the case in Christian tradition. When Lisa was talking about ascent and descent as being a theme in the Vietnam Memorial, it right away struck me how much I had tried to work with this same pattern in this little booklet of songs that I've written a couple years ago that's all set to music by Professor Butler in our music department, Kenosis, which takes Christ's descent into humanity and even to, into hell, as the creed says, and his ascent again into glory as a pattern of our own lives, that in a sense we start with uh, full of ourselves, full of ego, uh, full of our own purposes, and those things have to, that, and full of our own willfulness, and that has to be yielded through a process of stripping away to the point where we finally must call for help to God, at which time we find ourselves answered, actually answered before the call itself. The call itself is a is an operation of grace in our lives, and from that point. Uh, Spiritually, the phases are all in, under the mark of grace. And they lead to this point that I tried to express in a poem called Jubilee. This poem is just, it's the last one in the series. It's uh, only 49 words long, very deliberately 49, because I'm dealing with the whole Sabbath tradition and the, the, the tradition of the Feast of Jubilee, um, which was more often honored in the breach than in the observance by the ancient Israelites. So it's that idea of a day in which the debts are forgiven and property repaid and, repaid and, the, and the slaves set free as being an ideal of justice that always lies just beyond our reach throughout human history. That's what I wanted to get at here. I wrote this poem. And, and so I have seven words in every line, seven lines, but it's the 50th word that's never written that is the most important to me. It starts with an epigraph. You shall send it through all your land to sound a blast and pray, proclaim liberation for all its inhabitants. Leviticus 25, verse 10. The unspoken word, the unheld feast, 50th day after days, week after weeks, year after years, name above all names, dumb. When will fences fall, shackles crack, we forgive our debtors. Honks, I hear, but never heard the ram's horn blow. When will heart beat still enough to hear? Wonderful things happen when you improvise. <laughs> Listening to your poem, Randy, I was so struck by uh, the call to look forward to the feast in the kingdom, the resolution of the whole history we have been living into as, as a Christian community for thousands of years. And that's what the Lord's table calls us to do. In that broken bread, we simultaneously see Christ's death our salvation accomplished 
and an invitation to the Feast of the Lamb, which is described in Revelation. That is redemptive memory. That is the telos of history. I'm going to show you a clip uh, from later on in the same video of another monument that I think accomplishes so beautifully this circle of redemptive memory, literally in the structure of the monument itself. And you'll hear what you're actually going to see are some of the people who spoke at the dedication of the monument. And listen to their language. Maya Lin has been able to elicit in the simplicity and purity of her monument the history and helped people articulate the redemption of that history. This is her monument to the civil rights movement that she was commissioned to build by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, it commemorates all of the events that transpired in the United States between 1954 when segregated education was overturned by the Supreme Court and the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968. Uh, I realize we have only a minute or two left. The clip is about four minutes long. If you need to leave, you are free to do so. If you can stay for an extra two minutes, um, watch the clip. We also invite you to think about what in your own life needs to be redeemed through memory. <laughs> 